<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. It's 2020 and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. From visionary horror director Osgood Perkins and an executive producer of Insidious comes Gretel and Hansel. Forget the fairy tale you know and witness a dark and twisted adaptation of the beloved story. Sophia Lillis of It stars in Gretel and Hansel, now playing in theaters nationwide. Get tickets at GretelandHanselTheMovie.com. Roses are red and so is blood. From director Joe Bagos comes Fangoria's newest movie, VFW. Tell me this doesn't sound good. A group of war veterans must defend their local VFW post and an innocent teen against a deranged drug dealer and his relentless army of mutant punks. Starring everyone you've ever seen in an 80s action movie. Stephen Lang, Martin Cove, William Sandler, Fred Williamson, George Went, and David Patrick Kelly. In select theaters and streaming on demand this Valentine's Day. I'm Mick Garrison. This is the fun size episode of Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. And asking in your stead is producer Joe. Joe, what have we got on tap today? Well, we've got some fun questions that have been backlogged since we've been off the air for a couple of weeks. Yeah, um, I hope everybody had good holidays and is back to it, the holidays. Yeah, yeah yes, no. So so ha- happy, very belated New Year. Uh, <laughs> yes, well in. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, so first up, we have a question from Facebook. Um, they wrote, I was at Beyond Fest this year for the In Search of Darkness, the In Search of Darkness documentary. Uh, I was one of oh, the yeah, that's a four-hour documentary. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it. I'm really yeah. excited to find I've it. I've seen half of it. Uh, <laughs> And you're in a lot of it, apparently. Uh, apparently. Uh, so he, he goes on to write, During the Q&A, I loved your story about Siskel and Ebert, and I was wondering if you could tell more about your encounter with them. So I guess the first question is, what is the story, Mick? <clears throat> well, I was doing specialized publicity at Avco Embassy, handling their genre films, going to festivals and conventions and the like, showing slides and trailers, things like that. And Siskel and Ebert, did a special episode of their At The Movies where they just ripped slasher movies to shreds. And all these movies coming out, the slasher films, and how reprehensible they were and how awful you were if you went to those movies. And they showed a bunch of movies coming up, the posters from the movies, including The Howling. Well, Mm. The Howling was not a slasher movie. However, 
it was a werewolf movie at a time when that seemed anachronistic. So they hid the fact that it was a werewolf movie because slasher movies were selling. They called it The Howling, and there were just these slashes through the poster. And uh, so no one knew until the release of the film that it was a werewolf movie. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, they thought it was too old-fashioned, that people might not go to an old-fashioned werewolf movie. Did they lean into the kind of serial killer opening of it all? Is that uh, it? Well, it became clear once the trailers came out and, and right. where it was near the release of the film. And in fact, that same month there was, or at least that year, there was The Howling Wolfen and An American Werewolf in London, which proved that there was indeed life left in the werewolf. So the my bosses at Avco Embassy sent me to Chicago to meet with them, show them the trailer and clips from the film, and let them understand that this wasn't just another cheesy uh, slasher movie. And so we did, and it was really great. Roger Ebert was incredibly nice. Um, and Gene Siskel, not a genre fan at all, not a warm and fuzzy guy. Um, he just was all business. Oh yeah. Thanks for coming. But Ebert was very nice, invited me to come to his film class, which, which he taught at the university there. Um, I wasn't able to go because I had to get back to LA, but, um, you know, it was a really interesting experience to go to the studio where Roger, Ebert and Gene Siskel recorded at the movies every week and uh, and and show them these clips. Well, and like Rotten Tomatoes now, their thumbs up and thumbs down on that show could make or break you. That meant everything. Two thumbs up on a movie wouldn't guarantee box office, but it would sure help. Um, so they were the strongest film critics in America, the most powerful film critics in America. And Ebert himself, you know, he was... He liked the genre if it was good stuff. Well, he also made some exploitation. Well, yes. He (laughs) wrote Russ Meyer's uh, um, Valley of the the Dolls, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Right, right, right. And, you know, a a notable (laughs) film in its own right. (laughs) And certainly nothing that that would allow its writer to look down his nose at some of the uh, (laughs) other material that he looked down his nose at. But no, he was a very, very nice guy, very knowledgeable about film and film history. And it was an interesting experience for me as somebody just entering the film industry. Did you ever cross paths with them again outside of them reviewing your movies or... Uh, no. Uh, I think the only one they reviewed was Critters 2, which they did not like. So, fuck them. Fuck (laughs) (laughs) All right, next. Uh, One of our Instagram, a question from Instagram. They write, Hi, Mick. I was wondering, was it your decision to use Enya as part of the score of Sleepwalkers? If so, what made you come to that decision? It feels very much a part of the film, like it was written for it. And it's still one of my favorite uses of pre-existing music in a film ever. Well, thank you. And I'm very, very happy with the way it turned out. However, my original plan was not to end with that music. Oh, wow. Uh, As a matter of fact, my favorite band at the time, and still remains one of my favorite bands, even though they have not been together for some time, was Crowded House. Mm. And I used Don't Dream It's Over in in The Stand. I used a Tim Finn song in The Shining. Um, And the opportunity came up. I screened the movie for the band, 
for Crowded House. And they were real genre fans, Tim Finn in particular. Mm. And so they had an original song that had not been on any of their albums. And they played it for me because I wanted to end the movie with one of their songs. And it was a, it's still not on any of their albums, but it was a great song. And I really liked using it, but it was too expensive for Sony to pay for. It wasn't that expensive, but they were balking at that. So they were giving me music from this new band called Nirvana that was... People were talking about them that being a band on the way up. Seem right. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, we we tempt in in the chase scene. We tempt in a Nirvana song from their first album. Oh wow! And it was okay, but it just didn't have the punch that an original score would have for sure, that. Sure. Sure. So I went through. Uh, Bones Howe was our music supervisor, one of the great music supervisors ever. From works for worked for Columbia at the time. So I got a stack of CDs that I was going through. And um, so I came across Enya, and that was one of Bones's recommendations. Um, and somebody who worked for Bones is who I, I dealt with more than working with Bones directly. And so I'd never heard Enya before, and we played that song. Um, and it was perfect, and it was so haunting. You know, there was... The idea, well, I also almost used the Kinks song, Sleepwalker, which was a little on the nose. Sure. And after everything we've gone through, plus we shot a new ending for Sleepwalkers. It didn't originally end with the way it does. Um, it was the only time I've ever done additional footage. We shot a new opening for the movie. Right, I knew The that. Mark Hamill scene right, that was, was added. Yeah, I knew that the was same sure. time yeah. we, yeah, the same time we did that, that same week, we shot a new ending because they felt that it didn't have enough power. So that last sequence yeah. uh, with uh, Tanya in the car and a lot of what happens there, yeah. that was all additional footage. Oh, wow. Wait, okay, time out. Yeah. What was the original ending of Sleepwalkers? Basically, it just ended, <laughs> killed him, uh, it was over, and and uh, everything goes on. Everything that happens outside the house at the end, yeah. that was additional. Really? All of that was wow, additional. because it feels so... Him getting slammed yeah. onto the uh, the picket fence and yeah. uh, all of that and stuff. I assume King wrote that whole additional sequence as well, yes. right? Yes, yeah. yes. And, uh, and I wrote the opening oh, cool. piece. Yeah. So, um, uh, well, and... But King rewrote that opening. Right. So the only thing that I wrote, the only scene in its entirety that I wrote was the one where you see the sleepwalkers in the mirror, the scene that Mm. would have given us an X rating if uh, if the MPAA (laughs) hadn't gotten in the way. So I first tempted it with the King sleepwalker um, coming right in on the last, right after the last scene before we did the reshoot. Then when we did the reshoot, it was more of an elegy and more haunting. And and so this piece by Enya 
could not have been more appropriate for it. And it does feel like it was planned yes, to be it there. It feels like yeah. it's part of the score. Absolutely. It's beautiful. It's haunting. It's airy. It, it, it has an ethereal quality to it that a pop song wouldn't have. Who turned you on to Enya for it? It was from the the record company. You know, Columbia was aligned with CVS Records. Sure. And so we went through a lot of their artists. Uh, but they came from all over. But it came from the music supervisor uh, uh, in a big stack of sure, choices. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, but what a find. And, so there's and a the long part. answer to that no, story. It's an awesome answer yeah. to that. I, there's a lot I, I didn't know, which is, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, Nick Robert asks... Can you please tell us what went down behind the scenes with the controversy surrounding the Masters of Horror episode, Imprint? Yeah, well, it was a big surprise to everybody because Showtime gave us five rules. They said, you can do whatever you want, but these five rules don't break them. One was killing children. Adults killing children, children killing adults, probably some sort of male genital uh, exposure, whatever. There are five rules that we really didn't care about. And so we were able to say to every director, you can do whatever you want, just these things we'll have to be careful of. Right. So nobody ever broke those rules. But the level of intensity in the Miike film, in Imprint, was so high that it was an overall thing. The people at Showtime said, we can't show this on American television. Yeah, yeah but it's pay TV. And so th- what they did was basically just say, it's too intense. Yeah, um, We can't show it at all, no matter what you so cut. it wasn't like any specific thing it was just the overall level nothing specific but interestingly uh, you know we wanted to protect Miike's vision right well Miike and the Japanese producer and I was there during production in Japan to just oversee and make sure everything went smoothly it was released theatrically in Japan well that's the thing there was a 68 minute version that was released theatrically just in Japan now the extra eight minutes all took place in the torture scene, <laughs> and I saw that long version sure. obviously, and I just said, "Well, this is what you want to make." Yeah. Miike's <laughs> impression and and his his uh, explanation for why he did it, he said, "The more you torture her, the more we will feel sympathy for her." Mm. Well, I think to a certain point, maybe that's true, but. This was his vision, right? and I wasn't about to change it, and sure. none of the people involved in the show wanted him to make any changes. Um, and so, but they said, we'll cut it for you. Sure. We would have cut it for you because we didn't tell them that this issue was going on right. until it had already happened. Now, at the time, Walmart sold 40% of all DVDs that were yeah, sold in America. Yeah. And they're very particular about what they're they They're very care. particular. And once they heard that Showtime wouldn't air imprint, they wouldn't release it in their stores. Wow. We thought, oh, this is going to be great publicity. The show that even Showtime couldn't air sure. that will yeah. sell a ton of DVDs. DVDs yeah. Well, we did on the nationamazon.com right and we did in other stores and best buy and things like that but 40 percent is a lot and to not have that market uh now 
the way we got under the radar was when the box set was released. They didn't know anything about that, and of course, it was in the box set. But it was a very interesting situation, and just the the whole idea of doing something, yes, it's intense. It's certainly the most um, vicious thing I've ever done as a producer sure. or in any way, yeah. but it was a reflection of a very regarded and highly revered filmmaker, including by myself, expressing his vision. And the whole point of Masters of Horror was to present a show with filmmakers doing whatever they want, unfettered, with no interference. And so that's what we tried to do, and we ended up having to not fulfill our mission. Yeah. Well, but it, it, it exists and it can be found. It exists. Yeah. And the, the ironic thing I, I think is, uh, you know, last fall El Rey picked up the license for masters of horror and they ran it on Saturday nights kind of throughout Halloween. I and didn't they, even know that. And they, and they aired imprint. Uh, oh, great. Yeah. So the only, t- and that's yeah. a commercial channel, right? It's an, it was and a cable channel. It's not even yeah. a subscription based channel, which, which I just thought was just the, the I, I guess it, it has shows ads. you yeah. how far, Horror has come on television, I think, yeah. uh, because Masters was so new and so revolutionary and so edgy, yeah. right? And an imprint pushed that boundary, and now here we are almost 15 years later, and, and now it's on basic cable. Oh, that's <laughs> incredible, with commercials. Yeah. With commercials. <laughs> well, I think it helps that uh, it's Robert Rodriguez's network. Yes, yes so. I think that's true, too. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I was talking with a writer friend of mine, and, and he kind of posed this question after uh, through our conversation. He's working on an Amazon show right now, and he made a comment that the directors were shooting two pages a day. Yeah. And uh, for me, you know, I was shooting on, on my first feature, I was shooting eight to ten pages a day. Wow. Uh, so, which is, you know, crazy circumstances. But, yeah, that's nuts. Uh, which is, it was nuts. Uh, but two pages seems crazy. And we started, and he said, well, what did... What's what's the the most mixed done in a day, and and what's the least? So I thought let's talk let's talk about that because I don't think probably most people listening realize that you know you have a twelve hour workday, right? And you know unless you go into overtime, you you try to stick to those twelve hours. Yeah, and even if you go into overtime, you need to wrap your day. Right, you can't get behind in most situations. Exactly, and you only have so many days to shoot. Right. Uh, which means that that page count gets divided up over those days. And the shorter your shoot schedule is, the higher that page count goes up and kind of, you know, almost the harder it is to shoot something great because you just don't have the time. So I was, so I guess the, the first question would be, uh, how, what is the, the lowest number of pages you've ever gotten to do? Well, probably the average major studio film, the average is two pages a day. Right. Two to three which, pages. Yeah. Two to yeah. three pages, yeah. which is incredibly luxurious yes. schedule yeah. uh, that I've rarely, if ever, had. Um, I have shot two pages, maybe even as little as one and a half, but only on a really complicated effects Dang. scene. Yeah. Now, motion capture, no, uh, motion control is an incredibly time-consuming, horrible visual effect. That's where the camera replicates a move multiple times, and you have multiple uh, images within that. For example, you have a moving camera uh, on an actor who disappears during the shot. 
So you can do, it's easy to do in a static shot. You just lock it off and then the background is identical no matter what. And you, and, and you shoot it twice or right. three times and, and you can do whatever you want, fade in, fade out, do whatever the effect is. But with a move, it would have to be a computerized move so that it was exactly the same speed, exactly the same movement and all of that. Now, setting that up, they tell you four hours, yep. double it and double that. Yeah. It's <laughs> They don't do it anymore because you don't have to. With sure. digital technology, yeah. you're now able to do a moving camera effects shot without having to do repeated shots. The, the actual um, motion control was created on the original Star Wars right. and used a lot with blue screen photography. Which is why, you know, months before they were about to release they'd only done like five shots <laughs> yes so in this case probably there's a sequence in riding the bullet where um the lead character of alan goes into his home as a little as a little boy and we see it transform from how it was when he was a child into how it is now and you see him transform as well and just the setup alone was uh, atrocious and in sleepwalkers there are more scenes like that like the car disappearing in a couple of shots and being replaced by something else where maybe we did a page and a half to two pages that's the least i've ever done in a day it's just like if you were shooting you know custer the attack on General Custer, you have, and the Indians come over the hill and slaughter him. Well, that's that's going to take days, days to shoot, days. to yeah. shoot yep. a sentence. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I thought that one of the most notable from last year that I can think of was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, uh, the ranch sequence. Tarantino shot that over two weeks. Really? Yeah. Which I'm like, wow. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a luxurious that amount a luxu- of time. Yeah. 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 I mean, but it's, it's also probably one of the best sequences in the movie. It's great. Yeah. I, I love that film. Uh, yeah. But I guess the, the, the moral of the story you just told is just because you have a low page count day doesn't mean the work is any easier or less stressful in some cases. Well, especially uh, within the genre. You yes. know, I remember the first time doing a courtroom drama and thriller uh, called The Judge. It was like, wow, what are we going to do after lunch every day? I'm so used (laughs) to having makeup effects and motion control and all the difficult technical stuff on top of performance and storytelling issues. And then I discovered that uh, the day fills its vacuum (laughs) easily. Yeah, that's true. true. So I'm imagining the B part of your question. Is what is the most pages you've crammed into a day? (laughs) I had a scene on the stand where we were shooting. Our average was four pages a day, five pages a day. The stand was going to be the answer. Yeah, yeah. well, it was, uh, you know, it was a 100-day shoot, and it was well over 400-page script. Right. But um, it was 460 pages. But there was a scene where everybody is together in a house hypnotizing Tom Cullen. And there are 13 characters around a table. And it was 11 pages long. (laughs) And we had to be in and out that day. And you could do it. You could do it like a play and just shoot it. But 
you want to give it a sense of motion and impact and try and keep it alive because the actors were great and the dialogue, the scene is really fascinating and emotional too because Tom Cullen is probably... He's being hypnotized to go in so that he doesn't remember who he is, what their mission is, and do something that will maybe mean the end of his life. Right. So it's incredibly emotional send off. All of these characters care tremendously for this guy, and there's 13 characters. So I put a dolly around the table. Yep. And did tracking in multiple sizes in both directions. And then, because you're always changing the screen direction when people are talking to each other, I had to set up static shots as well Mm -hmm. to get those close-ups or two shots or three shots over either shoulder of each of these characters, of these 13 characters. Your your master that you could cut back and forth to. Exactly. And then you had to get the basic coverage on everybody. Exactly. But when you have 13 actors in a scene, if somebody messes up, they all start messing up. It becomes contagious. And so, (laughs) or if somebody gets giddy, you know, you're shooting 13 hours in this one scene over and over and over and over. Right. Somebody gets giddy, somebody giggles, somebody makes a joke. It It's like a wildfire raging through each of the actors at the same time. So that was 11 pages of really intense uh, dialogue Luckily and performance. To, it was all in that one space. It's the only way I could have made that day. Absolutely, because yeah. cause once you start moving into other spaces and resetting up and rebuilding scenes, it, it, I mean, you just lose so much yeah. time doing that that you can't do that much content otherwise. Yeah, but yeah, once right. we had our masters, our circular masters, right. we knew we had the scene, right. but we had to finesse it. Sure. And get, you know, you always encourage the actors to save their deepest emotions for when you're close on their face. Right. right. And uh, so that was a real trial for somebody who was still relatively new at directing. Did you find that when you were doing the dolly circles around the cast, that because the camera could be on any one of them at any time, they were they stayed on? Oh, yeah. They, they were a great cast, and they were yeah. very committed. But I'll tell you, everybody was telling me, you can't intercut those moving shots with static shots. You totally can. You totally can. I said, watch me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it. you just have to be cautious on when you do it. You don't right. suddenly arrest a moving shot in the middle of a face and then bang, it's right. static on right. some right. on the yeah. same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's, it's a technical balancing act that, you know, the technical end of filmmaking and the emotional end of filmmaking really have to play hand in hand. And that's the biggest challenge as a director is making them work for each other and rather than against each other. Well, on that note, uh, Mick, thank you for another wonderful AMA. (laughs) Thank you, producer Joe. You're welcome. All Uh, right. See you next time. All right. Thanks everybody for tuning in to AMA and you can ask your questions at Mick Garris PM on both Instagram and Twitter and go to our Facebook page at Postmortem with Mick Garris. And we'll see you soon. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.